now. This week in sport history. Unfortunately, we kick off with a real tragic story from the early days of the NBA. March 15th, 1958, and three days after being knocked unconscious during the last game of the season and mere hours after losing game one of the Western Division semi-finals, Cincinnati Royal star Maurice Stokes fell ill on the flight back to Cincinnati, later suffering a seizure, which would leave him permanently paralysed. Stokes was diagnosed with post-traumatic encephalopathy, which put simply is a brain injury which causes damage to the motor control centre. Stokes was looked after by fellow Royal Jack Twyman, who became his legal guardian, and luckily he was able to regain some of his physical movement and speaking ability. As a result of this, there is now the Twyman Stokes Teammate of the Year Award to recognise it. Damian Lillard is the current holder, but past winners include Chauncey Billups, Shane Battier, Tim Duncan, Vince Carter, Dirk Nowitzki, Jamal Crawford, Mike Conley and Drew Holiday. Ultimately, Stokes suffered a fatal heart attack in 1970, aged just 36. We often talk about what-ifs in sport, guys who could have been one of the all-time greats, but for a number of reasons. Obviously, in the NBA, there's Derek Rose, Penny Hardaway, Grant Hill or Bill Walton. In the case of Len Bias, of course, he's one that never even made it past draft night. Stokes is absolutely one of those what-ifs that doesn't get spoken about nearly enough. At just 6'7", he led the league in rebounds in his first season at 16.3 a game and managed to up that to 17.4 and then 18.1, which was a career high to go with his 16.9 points per game. If you're wondering why he didn't lead the league those years, it's because this is when Bill Russell entered the league. In his three seasons, he was an all-star every year, and All-NBA second team each year behind Paul Arizon and Dolph Shays, both of whom are Hall of Famers and NBA at 25, 50 and 75. He was Rookie of the Year and honestly achieved more in three seasons than a lot of players achieve in their entire career. Yeah, just one of those guys that we absolutely would be talking about as one of the greatest to ever do it had he been able to have that full career and a, a real shame like so many others. I mean, like those guys that you, you mentioned who, yeah, we'll never know. We can't take anything for granted. No. March the 17th, 1996, at the Cricket World Cup final at Gaddafi Stadium in Lahore, Pakistan, the Sri Lankan cricket team achieved their first ever World Cup win, knocking off the Australians. Aravinda De Silva top scored for Sri Lanka with 107 not out, while earlier taking three for 42, as the Australians were restricted to seven for 241. Now, how's this for something I forgot? We've obviously just talked about the great man himself, Shane Warne, and what a loss to the game he is and, and what an amazing loss he always will be. Mm. But he came into bat before Stuart Law, Michael Bevan, and Ian Healy in this one. All I can think is that he was sent in as a pinch hitter. That's mm. the only explanation, I think. It's the only one that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, this was a really unusual World Cup for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was held across three nations, India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. This was the first time Sri Lanka had actually been invited to host a World Cup. And unfortunately, Australia and the West Indies refused to play in Sri Lanka at the magnificent R. Premadasa Stadium, which we have been fortunate enough to go oh, to. We have. It's a beautiful stadium. Yeah, that's where I met Chael. Of course it was. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, down by the nets. Not great security out there. They pat you down for about half an hour before you go in. <laughs> but anyway, that's another story. Now, I kind of understand because this was due to the Tamil Tigers. They bombed the Central Bank in Colombo just weeks before the tournament started. So your apprehension is understandable, I guess. Now, the Sri Lankans were awarded both of those games by forfeit or walkover, as they called it, and that actually qualified for the quarterfinals before a single ball was bowled. And I think we've mentioned this one before, but in the semifinal against India, they posted eight for 251, which is a yeah, pretty decent score back then. Oh, yeah, definitely. But India were in control. They were one for 98 at one stage, and then Sri Lanka takes seven for 22, absolutely turned the game on its head, left India floundering at eight for 120, 
and the local fans kind of lost their mind. They began throwing projectiles onto the field, and it eventually resulted in Sri Lanka being awarded the match for the first ever default in an ODI. So they actually only completed five of their eight matches in winning the final. Yeah, that's nuts, isn't it? I don't remember that at all. I'll be honest, I was 12 when it happened. We were only in year eight, and it was... Uh, a bit sketchy details, but I do remember staying up for the final. I remember mum let me stay up till a certain point in which I had to go to bed, so I missed the end. That's incredibly compliant. I don't know why I didn't just stay up and disobey orders. I mean, is she going to check on you? No, point? well, that's right. All, all I can think, and it would have been a reasonable time, like 1am or 2am, but all I can, it's because we had to go to church the next day, but all, all I can think is is that I, I knew we were going to lose and that's why I went to bed or something. I don't know, but yeah, yeah. All yeah. I take out of that is you saying that one or two o'clock is a reasonable well, time. Well, yeah, I'm nocturnal. 95% of the population, maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's not quite the number, but the vast majority would look at that time and go, that is incredibly late <laughs> oh dear just a normal day for you though now crazily sri lanka were actually 66 to 1 outsiders at the start of this tournament it is worth remembering that australian sri lanka had actually played a three test series that ended in january so a month earlier and this is the series that was dominated by the whole daryl hair no balling matai muralitharan story which kind of nearly derailed Matthias' entire career. Yeah, I, I remember that being a bit later too. I don't remember that being before the 1996 World Cup. So that's really interesting, mm. isn't it? But I do remember Sri Lanka getting absolutely towed at the wacker when the Aussies scored nearly 700. Yeah. Well, I mean, they lost the first test by an innings, the second test by 10 wickets, and the third by 140-odd runs. Yeah, so right. Not a great series for them at all. And yeah, as I say, this is the sort of thing going into a World Cup that could very easily derail your entire campaign. But instead, it actually galvanised the Sri Lankans. And there was a story the night before the final where the Aussies and the Sri Lankans were having dinner together in a room with the World Cup trophy. And all of the Aussies were taking photos with it. And Arjuna Ranatunga basically said to his guys, no, 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 no one take photos with it. We're going to be holding this thing tomorrow. Then you can have all the photos you want. Ah, boss move. I love it. Absolute boss move. And I'll tell you what, it worked. Hey, yeah. And superstition, I wouldn't have touched a trophy if I were one of the Aussie players. But it it is a different game. And and Sri Lanka really changed the game of one-day cricket. They they always wanted to score 100 in those first 15. Of course, Tony Gregg always creaming his dax about Kalu with Arana opening at the top there. So... They revolutionised one-day cricket, and that's why they won. Well, they did. I mean, I think Sanath Jayasuriya was the man. Oh, man, one of my favourites yeah, of all time. Man of the tournament. You had yeah. Mahanama at the top as well. They had some some cracking players in that A time. young Chaminda Vas and, and Mataya as well, so a pretty good attack too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, another thing we have spoken about before, but I kind of wanted to expand on because I've read a little bit more about this. I mentioned a while back that Nolan Clark became the oldest player to debut and play a game in an ODI. He debuted at 47 years and 240 days (laughs) for the Netherlands in a match against New Zealand at that World Cup. Oh, great. Then he played his last match against South Africa 17 days later at 47 years and 257 days. Actually scored 32 in that match, so not bad. Not bad at all. But in that New Zealand match, Flavian Aponzo debuted at 43 years and 112 days. Stephen Lubbers debuts at 42 years and 330 days. And Paul Jean Bacher debuted at 38 years and 182 days. Oh, practically in nappies. Yeah, spring chickens. <laughs> Absolutely. But to make this even crazier, all 11 players that played for the Dutch in that New Zealand game were on ODI debut. Yeah. 
Well, I guess they wouldn't have played many one-day internationals. No. Yeah, that's crazy. It's, it is. But that goes to show how great it was back then, having those what they call minnow nations, I guess, or I think they called them associate nations yes, back then. Yeah, well, they still do. But, yeah. it, but it's great to have those guys on board. And this is why we always say they should be playing every single game in that tournament instead of just playing. Yeah, they need the experience. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's really important. Now, it wasn't all bad for the Aussies. They went on to win the next three World Cups in 1999, 2003, and 2007 before being outclassed by India in India in 2011. Yes, indeed. March 18th, 2019, the Athens Derby in the Greek Super League between Olympiakos and Panathinaikos was abandoned after 70 minutes when fans set fire to the Athens Olympic Stadium. Initially, the game was postponed for nearly 10 minutes, a mere six minutes into the contest, after Panathinaikos fans tried attacking the Olympiakos substitutes in the dugout. The referee added 13 minutes of stoppage time in the first half, which is an astoundingly high number for a first half. Miguel Angel Guerrero scored in the 53rd minute for Olympiakos, which caused more chaos with fans releasing firebombs outside of the stadium. Police tried like crazy to fight back with tear gas, but the fumes made their way into the arena and then onto the pitch, basically incapacitating the players and a number of fans. At the 70-minute mark, German referee Marco Fritz had enough and blew full-time, ending the craziness. Fritz had only been refereeing because of a rule introduced the previous year that crucial games like the Derby would have to be overseen by an outside official due to a spate of horrible violent issues. Examples involved the owner of PAOK Thessaloniki storming the pitch with a gun after a late goal was disallowed in a match with AEK Athens. In 2012, a game between Olympiakos and Panathinaikos was abandoned after supporters attempted to access the ground without tickets, and when police intervened, petrol bombs were set off in the stands and firebombs were thrown at the police. Had this match been completed, it's likely that it would have broken the record for stoppage time, which, funnily enough, ended up later in the year at a whopping 28 minutes from a game between Burton Albion and Bournemouth after they had issues with their floodlights. It's a crazy old game sometimes, football, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. And a birthday to finish it off, March the 20th, happy 77th birthday to Miami Heat team president, Pat Riley. Riley's been successful in every aspect of the NBA. He won a championship as a player with the LA Lakers in 1972, as an assistant coach with the 1980 Lakers team, five more times as a head coach with the 82, 85, 87 and 88 Lakers, as well as the 2006 Miami Heat. Now, that 18-year gap between 88 and 2006 is easily the longest gap between two rings for a coach. And then he capped it off with three more as an executive, that same 2006 Heat team, because he was the coach and an executive at the same time, as well as 2012 and 2013. This makes him the only North American sports figure to win championships on all four levels, and he's actually reached the finals in some capacity in six different decades. I don't know what's more impressive. That's crazy. <laughs> That's a good question, actually, yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose maybe being around for six different decades or something, but yeah. Well, high level too. It's, I mean, cracky. That's a hell of a record. He's a three-time coach of the year, also coached the All-Star Game nine times, and he would definitely be one of the reasons that they don't let the same coach coach the All-Star Game in consecutive years, since from 1985 to 1990, his Lakers led the West at All-Star Weekend, giving him the spot every time. Hmm. A lot of very envious coaches watching him. Either that or coaches that they're happy they got a longer break. Well, this is true. Yes, yeah, <laughs> this is very true. Yeah, if it's Greg Popovich, he wouldn't have cared. I mean, yep, no worries. Let me go. Yeah, give us another couple of days. Now, funnily enough, Riley only actually got into coaching in the first place because in 1979, then Lakers coach Jack McKinney was nearly killed in a cycling accident and Paul Westhead took over as head coach, hiring Riley as his assistant. 
Six games into the 81-82 season, Magic Johnson stated that he didn't enjoy playing under Westhead and wanted to be traded. So the Lakers fired Westhead and tried to make Jerry West coach the team. Now, West balked at that, so they named he and Riley co-coaches before West kind of pushed Riley towards being the head coach and him being the assistant. Showtime was officially born and the championships followed. Oh, yeah. He then had successful stints with the Knicks, taking them to the finals in 1994 and with the Heat winning the 06 finals, which we spoke about before. But only after dogging Stan Van Gundy once the team was a contender again, following some pretty lean years in in (laughs) those early 2000s Uh, were not good. Oh, yeah. But then, in another amazing move, he hired Eric Spolstra as his successor, who then would become one of the greatest coaches of all time. And he was a big part of forming the big three of LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh to win two more championships. Fun fact about Riley, even though he never played college football, he was actually drafted by the Dallas Cowboys as a wide receiver in the 11th round of the 1967 NFL draft. And he was a color commentator before entering the coach's box. He's done everything. Crazy. So happy birthday to the godfather, Pat Riley. Yes, indeed. This Week in Sport History. Thanks for listening to this Sport Blokes segment. Why not listen to the full episode and check out their Twitter at Sport Blokes. 